Talking history. This is News Talk. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. And out of that silence came thousands of voices. The strategy of the white man has always been divide and conquer. As one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Aukteroin, Argus, Akoiza. Good evening and welcome. We're talking history on News Talk 106 to 108 with me, Patrick Gagan. In tonight's show, we're continuing our look at the Irish Civil War, which began 100 years ago and which scarred the new Irish state. With a new panel of experts, we'll be looking at some of the worst atrocities committed and debating whether it killed the idealism and hope of the revolutionary generation. You can email us your thoughts and views, talkinghistory at newstalk.com, and we'd love to hear from you. Last week, we debated the life and legacy of Oliver Cromwell and found out why his reputation is still so hotly contested outside of Ireland as well as in our own country. And if you want to listen back to this or to any of our older shows, just go to the News Talk app powered by Go Loud, our website, newstalk.com, or wherever you download your podcasts. The Irish Civil War was a tragedy which scarred the new Irish state. Instead of the idealism and hope of the revolutionary generation, there was left a legacy of bitterness and division. And to take a new look at the Civil War, I'm delighted to welcome this week's panel of experts. Dr. Mary McAuliffe is an historian, lecturer and director of gender studies at UCD, an expert on the revolutionary period. Her books include a study of the feminist, trade union activist and revolutionary Margaret Skinner, and she is the co-editor of the book Commemoration, Gender and the Postcolonial Carceral State. Owen O'Shea is an author, historian and researcher with a passionate interest in the history of County Kerry and is the author of Bally McCandy, The Story of a Kerry Ambush. And his new book will be published this month, No Middle Path, The Civil War in Kerry. Michael Barry is an historian and the author of many books on the Irish Revolutionary Period, including the critically acclaimed and illustrated history of the Irish Revolution, 1916 to 1923. And he's the co-author of a new book, The Irish Civil War in Colour, published in hardback by Guild Books. John O'Byrne is a professional photographer and colourizer, and over the last decade he has specialised in colourizing military scenes from the early 20th century. And he's the other person behind the new book, The Irish Civil War in Colour. Well, you're all very welcome to the show. And Mary, I might begin with you because uh, yesterday you took part in a very interesting panel as part of the Dublin Festival of History, and it had the great title Sister Against Sister, Women in the Irish Civil War. And, you know, we did a show on the Civil War about two months ago and it's been our most popular podcast and there is this huge interest in the Civil War of the events of 100 years ago and I think people are fascinated with these different layers of the stories and new parts of the story that are, that are only really being interrogated now. Oh yes, absolutely and um, the reason we did the panel yesterday um, and, and indeed this is the second or third time we've done a similar panel about the women in the Civil War is to bring in that story, bring it more into the actual mainstream narrative of the Civil War uh, to understand that the, the women split uh, as much as the men split, particularly the, the political women and the militant women split on the Civil War. So it's really about looking at what happened after Common Amman split in February 1922 uh, on the treaty and then the activities uh, very important activities of the militant women, the anti-treaty women, 
during the uh, all of the civil war from the 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 taking of the four courts until late in 1923 and it's extraordinary how the role of women uh, has been written out well both of the war of independence although less so but certainly in the civil war because this veil of silence descended on what women did in the civil war because in in many ways post-Civil War, the women were blamed for the bloodshed. They were the Furies, the Amazons, the unmanageable, ungovernable revolutionaries. P.S. O'Hegarty was particularly vitriolic about the anti-treaty women, the diehards, the gun girls, the Amazons, as they were called, as was W.T. Cosgrave. And so because they found themselves on the wrong side of history, really, going forward, um, that silence was there in the decades following the Civil War, uh, many of the women didn't speak of their activities in this period. And when we dig down into it, um, you can see that without their help, uh, the anti-treaty Republican forces couldn't have carried the fight for as long as they did. Similarly, in the War of Independence, but they become much more militant in the Civil War, which is interesting. Uh, they are the propagandists of the uh, anti-treaty side, of the Republican side. They run many of the new sheets. Uh, for instance, one woman I studied, Nora O'Keefe from Tipperary, for a couple of weeks she runs one of the news anti-treaty news sheets in Tipperary and is arrested then and imprisoned in Kilmainham Jail. Um, Ethna Coyle was holding up trains up in uh, Donegal and various places like that. Many other of the women were um, minding the, the arms dumps, the safe houses, um, where the irregular forces were camped out in forests and mountains, they were the ones uh, providing them with food and with intelligence and with arms and ammunition where they could. Um, and they themselves then, I, I was looking a couple of days ago at the uh, reports from the Kerry Command into 1923, and this would have been after uh, Bally Sidi and all the, de the, the, the terrible things in the terror months of March and April in Kerry, on into the summer and into the election in the autumn. Uh, and uh, Paddy O'Daly was reporting back to Dublin saying, oh, Kerry's very quiet now, except for the female side. Uh, and these common among women were regarded as a severe menace and something had to be done about them. And of course, what that something was from the National Army was extreme violence. Uh, during the Civil War, the National Army does commit acts of extreme violence, physical, emotional, sometimes sexual, against uh, the uh, anti-treaty women. So bringing that story back into the, to the narratives of the Civil War gives us a, a deeper understanding of what's going on both among the anti-treaty militant population, male and female, but also the civilian population uh, and who's supporting them and how the irregular forces kept going, indeed, for as long as they could. And it is the great cliche of any civil war, this idea of it being brother against brother. And I think that's why the title of sister against sister works so well, because it forces you to, to recognise that there is other ways of thinking about a civil war. What measures did the free state take to, to force these women to, to return to their homes? They, there seems to be deliberate strategies to try and, and knock the women out of their involvement. Yes, well, of course. You've hundreds of them arrested, uh, over between five and six hundred are imprisoned in the various jails in Dublin, in Kilmainham, in Mountjoy, in the North Dublin Union. But also locally, you'll see dozens of them being held in local jails for shorter periods of time and made sign, uh, you know, agreements that they would go home and behave like good little girls and not do what they were doing. 
And of course, with the aid of Cumann the Searsha, the pro-treaty women's organization, who had separated from Cumann Amman, and indeed one, a number of the founders of Cumann Amman set up Cumann the Searsha, like Jenny Wise Power, they're operating as intelligence gatherers for the National Army and the, the government. So there's that real bitterness there between the women. Indeed, the Cumann the Searsha women get called Cumann the Searchers by the Cumann Amman women. Um, and then post-Civil War, uh, when, when the guns are put away, more or less, you see the Free State Government, um, 1922, the Constitution guarantees full and equal citizenship and full voting rights for all. But that was the high point. After that, the Free State Government ensures through legislation that women's place is in the home. And by the time the 1937 Constitution is written with the Women in the Home Articles, that's actually reflecting a society that has already uh, ensured that women go back into the home. They are, you know, political women, militant women are not acceptable in the new society. Their stories are silenced. Their voices are silenced. They're marginalized out of national politics. In many ways, they do it to themselves as well, because those who run for public office, particularly um, for national office, Many of them run on a Republican ticket and then refuse to take their seats in the Doyle. So they're not there at the centre of politics. Uh, you have six women TDs in the treaty debates. You will not have six women TDs for another four or five decades, five decades, until the 70s, really. Um, and so the women both marginalise themselves and they are marginalised by the political system. And this ideology of respectability and domesticity becomes the dominant trope for women. So all those coming among women who are so militant, most of them just go back into the domestic. Uh, if they are involved, it's at a local level, at you know social policy level, social work, education, healthcare. They're not in the mainstream politics, and that's that's the way the state wants it. Well, in tonight's show, we are taking a new look at the Irish Civil War, looking at some different angles and perspectives on it, and uh, John. The book that you've done with Michael Barry, it is fascinating, The Irish Civil War in Colour, because some of the images will be familiar to us, some of them won't be. But uh, the fact that they've been colourised, it gives a very different and a very fresh perspective to them. Yeah, it's like that. Everyone has seen the black and white photograph of their grandparents, their great grandparents. Some people can kind of wonder, oh, what colour was granddad's jacket? They've never seen the man alive. So putting them into colour... And it can be controversial at times. People either love it or hate it. Some people think it's damaging to history until they look at the research that goes into it. So we would take the images and work with what we know hasn't changed. Certain streetscapes haven't changed. A red brick building is still a red brick building, but it's not pure red. It is that earthy tone that you have to go back and look at. And you might look at a building today that was there in 1922, but it could have been sandblasted since then, so it's nice and shiny. Back then, it might have been a little bit grubby. Most of the buildings were well over 100 years old at that stage. The likes of fashion. Uniforms are one of the easier things to do. We all know that uniforms were a certain shade of green. That does not mean that every uniform was green. It doesn't mean that every Sam Brown belt or pair of boots were brown or black. Brass was brass. It wasn't always lovely yellow. It could have been tarnished a little bit. You're in the middle of a civil war. Lads were not going to be out polishing every single day of the week. Vehicles were another thing that people might just think, oh, was it a great truck driving around? Was it a green truck? The best thing about the colorizing and doing it in the detail that I think I've done it credit with is the likes of some of the Lancia armoured cars that were left over. There was some stencil on the side. 
which was the National Army crest, which in the black and white image is almost lost and not seen. And it just brings out little details like that, which hopefully brings it, I suppose, brings these photographs a bit closer to a younger generation. If they see it in colour, they might go, oh God, that's not that far away. Brings it a little bit closer in time. And it's interesting the way you have so many different people taking different types of photographs during the Civil War. You have regular people just out in the streets, but then you also have the international press, you have photojournalists, you have you know professionals there, and then you also have the amateurs. And it gives you a, a remarkable range. That's it. Like you have everyone who will be walking around and will be lucky enough the time to have their box brownie just straight on to film. Film might have been developed for 50 years, could have been found in a house and developed and go, oh, granny or granddad got an unusual shot of Dublin or Limerick or Kerry or anywhere in the country. But then you also have the, the high quality glass plate negatives, which I have to say are phenomenal. The detail of which, even on some modern day cameras, and I'm a photographer myself by trade, the quality in some glass plate negatives just cannot be beaten. You can scan in and zoom right into the smallest little enamel sign that could be across the other side of O'Connell Street and you can read it. And that's fantastic for me that I know I can go in, research what a certain brand of boot polish, go back through some collector's pages to see was that a green sign or a brown sign if the if the shades of grey don't jump out at me. If it's a Kodak sign, you know the classic colours that are going to be the red and the gold gilt. If there was a Sweet Afton sign, people remember the, the vivid kind of goldy yellow colour the little details underneath it. So the, the the better quality, the original image, well, definitely helped. And then again, some of the, the regular folk on the street with the camera, sometimes they caught the bits that the professional photographers had no chance of getting. The the likes of the, there's one image there of the forecourts being blown up. It's not a crystal clear image, but that almost adds to it. It's It's an explosion going off. You don't want everything to be crystal clear. It almost adds a different dimension. The fact that it's very slightly wavy, you're thinking... This is in the middle of a combat zone. It's a combat photograph taken in Ireland well before combat photography was... It was there in the First World War, but before it ever kind of became a thing in Ireland. Here's a photograph of probably one of the largest explosions, if not the largest explosion to happen on the mainland. And it's it's caught perfectly. No, excellent. And Owen, let's talk about your book then as well, uh, No Middle Path, about the Civil War in Kerry, because it's always been something that has fascinated people. The fact that, you know, there was so much activity in Kerry, there was so much violence, and it was so important in terms of the wider story. It was, and part of my motivation for researching and, and writing the book was really to try and discover um, why the events in Kerry in 22-23 have ensured that Kerry has a reputation for being, you know, the location of some of the most bitter and violent and brutal incidents and events of this period and why the war in Kerry was so protracted and and went on for so long when uh, the war was effectively over in in much of the rest of the country. And there are a few reasons for that, I suppose. I mean, geography certainly had a a role to play insofar as Kerry was, um, if you like, the most geographically distant and remote county from, from Dublin. And uh, whereas the Free State Army were relatively swift in uh, gaining control of the towns and the large urban centres in the county in August or September 22, uh, the IRA were held the upper hand in the rural areas and particularly in rural, uh, isolated and remote parts of, of uh, South Kerry, for example. Uh, as well as that, I suppose the, the arrival of the Dublin Guard and the 1st Western Division uh, effectively um, Outsiders who who were not native Free State Army officers or, or members, if you like, um, certainly I suppose um, 
ensured that there was a sense of uh, Kerry and the Kerry IRA being besieged by an outside uh, military force which had come into the county to to crush uh, the, the anti-treatyites. And there is no disputing or no doubting that uh, Paddy O'Daly, uh, who was mentioned earlier, and uh, other senior officers like David Nelligan and Ned Breslin were particularly ruthless and particularly... Um, particularly violent in their treatment of prisoners and in their treatment of uh, of the anti-treatyites. Uh, and as well as that, I suppose, what, what pretty probably most, um, if you like, uh, antagonised um, popular sentiment in terms of um, the attitude of the people of Kerry towards the Free State was the atrocities and events of March 1923 and April 1923, which people some people would be familiar, familiar with, um, and how the government of the day effectively covered up all of the um, appalling actions of, of senior figures in the, in, in the army like O'Daly uh, and essentially ensured that, um, you know, the official version of events would um, vilify the, the, the anti-treatyites but vindicate the, the, um, the Free, State, Free State Army. Uh, so there's, there's a number of ingredients, I suppose, that combined to ensure that the war in Kerry lasted for so long. And I suppose symbolically, if you like, people have you know, would be familiar with this reference to the Munster Republic, which was effectively, you know, by the autumn of 1922, was effectively a, a notional line stretching from Lemmick down to Waterford and within which um, the anti-treaty had held the upper hand. Effectively, by April of 1923, that division line, if you like, had a, had retreated really to the western seaboard. And one of the last incidents of the Civil War was right out on the cliff face of the Atlantic Ocean at a place called Clashmelkin, where a number of anti-treaty IRA and Free State uh, soldiers were killed in, in the, what's known as the Siege of Clashmilk and Caves. And that occurred even 10 days or so, or so after Liam Lynch had been killed. Um, so symbolically, I suppose, Kerry was sort of the last stand of the uh, the anti-treaty acts at the time. And for those reasons, I suppose, it's important that the that the story of Kerry and, and, and what happened there feeds into the, the, the wider narrative of, of why things were so bitter and, and protracted at this time. And own even your title, No Middle Path, which is a quote. Uh, was there no possibility of a middle path or some kind of compromise ground? Uh, there were some efforts in the autumn of 22 between O'Daly, as I mentioned, and some senior IRA figures in the county too. There were a couple of meetings actually between O'Daly and his senior officers with senior IRA men like Tom Ellistrom and, and Humphrey Murphy, but uh, they yielded uh, they yielded no results, unfortunately. Um there was no middle path, I suppose, and part of the focus of my research has been um, not so much on the combatants, but on the ordinary civilians who found themselves caught up in this and who had no particular allegiances one way or the other. But even those civilians or business people in particular who were known to have um, allegiances one way or the other were were victim to uh, some atrocious attacks and robbery and looting and intimidation. So, you know, I document in the book some of the some of the um, cases in the uh, compensation files, which were subsequently submitted by people um, impacted by, in terms of damage to property and so on. And certainly anybody that who had known sympathies or was a supporter of Common and Isle was, was a target for the anti-treaty IRA. And, you know, countless shops were burned or looted. Um, people like you know, ordinary civilians were kidnapped and held in remote areas. Uh, there was a significant campaign of intimidation. So while the, the IRA was perhaps unable, if you like, to dislodge the pre-state army from their barracks in the large towns and urban centres, there was this very uh, sinister, if you like, campaign of intimidation and attacks on ordinary civilians, attacks on 
farm animals, uh, attacks on, you know, hay sheds being burned, uh, homes being burned, businesses being looted and robbed. There was that sort of underbelly of, of intimidation and violence towards ordinary civilians that certainly ensured that there was, as you say, no middle path. You were really either on one side or the other. And um, I'll say I found uh, in, in my research, I, I, I felt... Um, deeply saddened by some of, the, I suppose, the ordinary civilians and people who were caught up in, in all of this uh, through no particular fault of their own. And it must have been, you know, quite a traumatic and difficult period for those, if you like, trying to remain outside of or above the violence, uh, being caught up in, in that in that campaign of intimidation and violence, as I say, which, which certainly also contributed to the, to the prolongation of the conflict in Kerry. And it is quite shocking the way civilians were caught up in the way you describe and the way some lost their lives. And uh, and it definitely seems to have been a story of, of lawlessness. You see all this terrible destruction, intimidation. You see it in those compensation claims on both sides that you that you investigate and that um, it doesn't it was a very dark time to be there. It was, and I suppose um, coupled with the with, with with some of what I've spoken about was the enormous psychological and um, uh, the, the 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 emotional toll, if you like, on civilians, but also on on combatants who survived and and the families of um, combatants who were killed. And thanks to the availability of the military service pension collection in the military archives and, and other sources we can develop a greater understanding of the absolutely dreadful toll that the conflict took on, particularly the mothers and fathers of the young men who were killed in large numbers. I mean, there were uh, over 170 combatants died in, in, in Kerry, and maybe close to 180 if you include civilians. Um, and the, the pension files do document uh, dreadful, dreadful stories of nervous breakdown of um, post-traumatic stress disorder or neurasthenia, as it would have been called at the time, uh, physical injuries that, that that remained for life. I often wondered, you know, uh, how much that contributed to the, the veil of silence, if you like, and the reason why the civil war in Kerry wasn't part of either the political or the public discourse in Kerry for, for generations. And I think the that psychological and emotional toll, particularly on women, as Mary spoke about earlier, um, the, the files of the common man women are, are littered with accounts of dreadful suffering, emotional suffering, um, nervous breakdown, financial hardship and poverty as well, as people tried to secure some sort of um, support from the government. But um, it has convinced me that part of the reason, as I say, that that sort of veil of silence prevailed for so long in Kerry is because there was that dreadful emotional toll and the mental health impacts and so on that, that you know, certainly in previous generations weren't ever spoken about because of the stigmas associated. And um, I think that's an additional layer of suffering during and after the Civil War that, that we need to consider to, to, to develop a fuller understanding of why these dark days in our history are still so painful to talk about. OK, well, tonight we are taking our second look at the Irish Civil War with a new panel of experts. We're going to take a quick break now, but when we come back, we'll be continuing our discussion of some of the worst atrocities, including the Bally CD massacre. So stay with us here on News Talk. Talking History with Patrick Gagan on News Talk.
Well, welcome back to Talking History. And tonight we are taking our second look at the Irish Civil War with a new panel of experts. Dr. Mary McAuliffe of UCD, the author of Margaret Skinner, Owen O'Shea, the author of a new book, No Middle Path, The Civil War in Kerry, Michael Barry, the co-author of The Irish Civil War in Colour, and John O'Byrne, a professional photographer and colourizer who's the other person behind that new book, The Irish Civil War in Colour. Well, Michael, look, it's great having you back on the show and it's great to see this new book, The Irish Civil War, in colour. And I wonder, given your extensive work on the Irish Revolutionary period and the Civil War before, has this given you a new perspective and new insights into the conflict? I think it has. Knowing the war, I know the War of Independence fairly intimately now. And um, of course, it's totally sad to see former comrades fought very closely together to have entered into this bitter phase, this this civil war, the disparity in memorials. And it's incredible, actually, that the free state side, if you like, they must have had some kind of sort of maybe hidden shame or so that they never really put up many memorials. In far as I know, the only significant ones are the Collins's grave and Collins's memorial in Bilnabal. And also the only really big significant one Elsewhere, uh, to my knowledge, is Tom Kills down in Nokanana in County Wicklow, a very, very impressive monument. But uh, if you go all around the country, um, it's mainly Republican, the, the fallen anti-treaty Republicans who are commemorated. Michael, one thing you see in uh, the Our Civil War in Colour book is the sense of the ordinary elements, the the regular day-to-day life, but you also see the extraordinary and it captures both what it was like for the civilians caught up in it as well as for those who were fighting on both sides. Uh, that's true. The, the photographs, uh, the images that exist uh, show soldiers, uh, principally the free state side, if you like, because uh, they had uh, press photographers embedded, embedded with them. It took us a long time to, uh, and we uh, made an endeavor to try and find people on the anti-treaty side. Um, not so many, but we did, we did get some. But then, as you say, the the ordinary people uh, who you see in passing, and uh, there's some very poignant ones, very poignant, really. John, it's fascinating that you also have a personal connection with the Civil War in terms of, uh, is it a great-granduncle who was there at the Four Courts in 1922 and also involved in the, the fighting in Kerry? That's right. Great-granduncle of mine, Private John Martin, uh, joined the Dublin Guard, incidentally enough. Um, and this week actually would have been the centenary of his death. And he was actually killed in an ambush down in Brennan's Glen outside of Farron Four. And I may actually look up and talk to Owen to see if he has any any information surrounding that because we've only really found out this part of our family history within the last number of years. But uh, yeah, he was involved in the firing in the four courts, uh, was wounded in the fighting in Kilkenny and then lost his life down in, down in Kerry. And did that add an extra resonance when you were looking at these photographs of the four courts, of the events, of the Civil War, uh, given that there was that personal connection? It did. And like I've been colourising photographs. I always knew there was a family connection to the Civil War. And like that, as many families, John and his brother went either side. John moved up to Dublin to join the army up here. His brother stayed back and joined the, the local IRA in Kildare. To see the, the images of the four courts, and the one or two images of Kilkenny, and it just kind of, especially at the four courts, and you could see the the faces of guys in it, and you're kind of looking, going, "Oh, I wonder, wonder was that, 
was that the great granduncle and is that him? Was that, you know, a couple of weeks before he met his demise? And yeah, it's an unusual feeling. The pictures are great at capturing the fear that people felt at the time. And I suppose the things we've been hearing about, the trauma, the, the shock and uh, and really, I suppose, just that uncertainty about what was going to happen next. Yeah, and even the, the image on the, the back page of the book is a child. And this young child is outside of the Kildare Street Club and all of her worldly belongings are with her. And she's standing there with a doll and it just kind of adds that little kick that, yeah, people forget about the everyday civilians going about their their work, trying to run a business, trying to keep their family safe, and the children as well. There's another image of a number of kids in Dublin dressed up as nurses and first aiders, and they're going along with little armbands and influenced by the surroundings around them. They would have never really seen much stretcher bearers or ambulances. Here they are dressed up as medics and first responders. They're walking with sticks as rifles, they're they're dressing up as first aiders and things that kids should they should never have been witness to. And looking back at that is kind of a bit eerie, especially colouring in because you're you're zooming in on every pixel. So you're spending a little bit of time on every face to colour in all the eyes, the cheeks, the the mouths. You're kinda of going, oh I'm not just glancing at the image. Every face and every every feature in the face. The few that you can almost see tears or anger. And to see that in a child's face, colouring in 100 years ago, you're going, going, that child might have only passed away in the last 30 years. It's not so far it's removed It's not from so us. far removed. As I say at home, it's only two handshakes. I shake my grandmother's hand. Now her granduncle had died previously, but mm-hmm. it wouldn't have been all that different from me shaking my grandmother's hand that she'd be shaking her uncle's hand. Owen, we've been talking about some of the atrocities in the first part and Kerry seems to have been the uh, the place where so many of the worst ones occur. And I wonder, was it because it just became this cycle of retaliation and reprisal that when you had a knock-nagoshal, then you were going to have a, a response like Bally Seedy and that one atrocity just, uh, uh, just provoked another atrocity in response? Yeah, to some extent, I think it was it was to some extent the, uh, the almost natural culmination of, of the sort of tit-for-tat guerrilla warfare that had been go- going on for a couple of months. But um, I suppose it shouldn't be forgotten that the atrocities of March, April 23 might not have occurred at all, but for a, a personal dispute between neighbours uh, in rural Nakhbegoshal, uh, which prompted uh, a local family had, had fallen out with the local IRA and it prompted um, a, a young member of the family to go to, to Castle Island um Army barracks and enlist, and um, the there was a huge bitterness and antagonism locally uh, amongst neighbours, um, which eventually led a short time later to the planting of the um, the trip mine at at uh, Wood in Knocknagoshal, uh, which claimed the lives of of five Free State um, soldiers who who went there to the to the site on on the on the understanding that there was an IRA arms dump uh, there, um, and that triggered. Um, a whole series of, of incidents over subsequent weeks that, that uh, led to the deaths of 17 uh, Republican prisoners. Um, and I suppose you'd have to um, consider that the response of Paddy O'Daly in particular, who was livid uh, at the um, attack on his on his soldiers at Dr. Goshel and senior, um, senior figures like him, you would really have to um, wonder if, 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 uh, if, his, if his sense of 
revenge or lust for revenge wasn't so um, acute, uh, w- w- would the, the scale of the atrocities have, have followed at all? Case Kerry and the atrocities in Kerry right up there in terms of the, the worst excesses of, of, um, of the brutality and barbarity that occurred. Mary, it does leave such an incredible legacy of bitterness, of trauma, there is that uh, suppression of the memories, but and, and yet the memories still survive because there are those chants of remember Ballycedia. So it's a very destructive legacy of the Civil War. Well, it is. Uh, it's a very contested legacy as well. Um, in looking at Ballycedia, you can see how it's a generational impact by uh, not even those who were directly affected, the families of those killed and, and, and the survival of Stephen Fuller. Uh, and indeed, I have my own connection with Bally Seedy in that one of the men killed there, Moss Toomey, would have been related to my grandfather. Um, and so there is that intimate connection in Kerry itself uh, with so many people, even distantly. But I was looking at the women who were imprisoned in Kilmainham Jail from Kerry, and one was Eileen O'Connor and Mrs. Eileen O'Connor, and her husband, John, had been a prisoner in Tralee Jail and was taken out as one of the prisoners to Bally Seedy and blown up. Um, as she says in her letter, blown to pieces by a mine, uh, deliberately laid by Free State soldiers. And she's coming, she's living in Liverpool with her three-year-old child. And she came over from Liverpool after she had heard John was dead, and she was arrested straight away, imprisoned in Kilmainham Jail, where she stayed there for quite a while with the other uh, imprisoned Cumanaman women. And so here's the three-year-old child in Liverpool, effectively orphaned now with their uh, its mother in jail and its father dead in Ballyseedy and how that impacts on the next generation and the next generation um, is incredible to think about. And so those memories are still contested. Uh, and the question is, uh, can we now, 100 years later, even in Kerry, but certainly and, and throughout the country, have a maturity to commemorate and think about the civil war without immediately being on one side or the other, to look at it in its, all its contested and complicated and traumatic narratives uh, and try and understand what happened and why it happened and to whom it happened and the legacies and impacts of that uh, in, in, a, in a way that is removed, I suppose, from much of the emotionality of, of being too close to it. Uh, and I think perhaps we can although it is still a very difficult and dark and traumatic period for us to think about. But perhaps now we can actually look at what happened people, how they suffered, why they did what they did, uh, and the impacts of that over the next generations on in to our free state and, and, and on in indeed into the Republic. Um, and I, I would hope um, that next year when... There is a conference in Kerry in February in 1923 to consider the civil war, that we will do that with a maturity uh, and an ability to actually take uh, a perspective that that isn't informed by uh, just being Republican or being uh, free state, but actually uh, has a sense of understanding, of of questioning, of um, honouring the memories of all those who were impacted by the civil war, uh, and providing, you know, a, a, a fuller and more complicated narrative and analysis of what happened. And Mary, I know, of course, that you have a special interest in County Kerry. And I wonder, is it a good case study for examining the whole sister against sister uh, dimension to the conflict? 
Oh, it is. And um, um, I've been lucky enough to read some of Owen's uh, book and he does document that. And the uh, suffering of the common among women is extraordinary. I mean, uh, there are several pension files that were that are heartbreaking of, of a young woman called Molly O'Shea who had to uh, basically pick up the pieces of her brother's body after he had been blown up at Ballycidi. But outside of that, you do have just the general uh, day-to-day undercurrent of violence in 22 and 23, and indeed it goes on into 24, of constant raids on houses, um, of interrogation. And again, reading the reports from the Kerry Command, it's very dry. Obviously, they're covering up the extreme violence that's going on, and, and they talk about how a um, a battalion went out and they searched all the homes in a certain area. And then you go to the pension files and you read about these raids that are happening in these areas um, and how people are dragged out of their homes and they're intimidated, they're put up against walls, shots fired over their heads. Some of the women talk about being beaten up and roughed up after the uh, killing of Free State soldiers in Nocknagotal uh, by a um, Republican landmine uh, some of the Cumannaman women who'd been involved in, uh, you know, helping set that ambush were attacked in their home and um, had their hair shaved off by the National Army soldiers. So there is this, this, this undercurrent, continuing undercurrent of violence, and that's what comes true in the pension files. And that's where you find where the silence is lifted of what the, the women and indeed the men suffered during this period. Um, and it's extraordinary to see how... Uh, how much they had to put up with and how they continued fighting for the cause despite this sort of violence. Uh, and even in the newspaper reports of the time um, of visits of, say, W.T. Cosgrave came down just before the election in 23 to, to Tralee to a visit, and he was met by a huge uh, march of common among uh, anti-treaty women, diehards as they were called, um, uh, who were protesting against him, and they marched with coffins through the streets of Tralee to remind the people um, that the, if they were voting for Free State uh, TDs, they were voting for people who had murdered their own people. So the bitterness of what had happened there was extraordinary. Um, and so these incidents, you know, they're just isolated. But when you look at the pattern in the two years uh, of the, particularly after the Dublin Guard come into Kerry, and I think uh, Owen is very right in saying it is like uh, an external enemy has come into the county and they're particularly brutal. And of course, an awful lot of these uh, members of the Dublin Guard had already fought uh, as members of the squad in Dublin. Uh, they are normalised to extreme violence uh, and this is what they come in to use and carry. Okay, we're going to take another quick break now. When we come back, we'll be exploring the legacy of the Civil War. So stay with us here on News Talk. Talking History with Patrick Gagan on News Talk. Well, welcome back. We're talking history and tonight we're talking about the Civil War. We've returned to the subject because there was such a great reaction to our, our previous show and we're discussing different aspects of it, including the atrocities, the legacy and indeed uh, that long history of bitterness in the in the almost century since. I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Mary McAuliffe, Owen O'Shea, Michael Barry and John O'Byrne. And Mary, a question about... 
the idealism of the revolutionary period, that there was such a spirit of hope and a belief that anything could be achieved and uh, from through the 1916 rising through to the War of Independence. And was that all killed by the Civil War? Because instead it was replaced by by all of this bitterness and trauma women were lost from the doll, women were lost from politics, that that it just seems to have killed and made all of that idealism just fade away? Well, I, I suppose war will uh, bring reality uh, crushing back in on people, especially if you have this idealised version of, you know, fighting for the Republic, dying for the cause, blood sacrifices and all that. Uh, and the reality of a post-colonial state that has to have a negotiated settlement uh, with uh, the former government, the former uh, colonial government, uh, that is always going to be a compromise, um, will, uh, you know, put a a big dent in that sense of uh, the potential that anything could have been achieved, the 32-county republic in which all would be equal, uh, as proclaimed in the 1916 proclamation, and particularly for the women, that full that guarantee of full and equal citizenship. Um, Margaret Skinner, whom I've written about, always went back to that um, that proclamation of 1916 that women were guaranteed an equality with the men. She said that so many times in her life, uh, and somebody like her is is a good case study to look at what the women did subsequently. Yes, she was anti-treaty. Uh, uh, rejected the uh, free state that was to come into being, particularly around the oath of allegiance, because for her, no oath was going to supersede that oath uh, to the republic she had uh, given in 1916. Um, But but these women were also very pragmatic, and they continued working on for the three great causes that Markovich had said, the cause of women, the cause of workers, and the cause of Ireland. Um, And of course, for the women, uh, what brought them many of them back together again, many of them who had been so bitterly divided by the Civil War and by the the treaty negotiations and the treaty itself, was the fact that they found themselves in, in a very misogynistic free state, that alliance of church and state, which dictated the position of women to be in the domestic, that the respectability was the dominant trope, acceptable only uh, to be a, you know, a married, mothering, domestic woman. Uh, and of course, we know if, if you weren't that, there was all sorts of punishments that, that could come after that, including institutionalization in places like Magdalene Laundries. Uh, and so for them, the enemy is no longer the British in many ways. The enemy is the state uh, and the legislation that's being passed in the state that is creating the second class citizenship. So you see people like Margaret Skinner collaborating with people like Jenny Weisspower, who had, and they'd been undivided by the treaty. Jenny Wise Power found it come in the Saoirse Margaret Skinner remains on the executive of Cumann Amman into the ninth, late 20s and into the 1930s. But they, they, they now have a common enemy. So the, you know, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Uh, and they are now collaborating together to, to create a, a better state. So they are quite pragmatic in some ways, but there is that loss of the radical potential would that have ever happened, even if the War of Independence had delivered a 32-county republic and, and, you know, there had been no negotiated settlement? That's, that's another question, because, of course, what essentially was a conservative society would have continued to be a conservative society. And I think the women would still have had to fight for full equality. 
But there is also, apart from that, apart from that pragmatism, I do think a lot of people experience that sense of loss of, of potential, of radicalism, of something that might have been different. Because essentially what we got was a poor country in which uh, a certain, the, the upper echelon of the elite were just replaced by people with, um, as I've often heard uh, uh, historian Liz Gillis say, people with different accents. Uh, and so you still have the hierarchies, you still have the class divisions, you still have the gender divisions, you still have those who own the land and control the land are for the most part still there. And the poverty of the tenements in Dublin is still there. In fact, it gets worse because now the state is actually broke. So in many ways, people were left with um, the ruins of a state they had to rebuild. And, and they did. A hundred years later, we can say they succeeded in that. But it wasn't, it wasn't the outcome of that idealized vision of a new Ireland. It was a very different thing that came into being, maybe a little bit nightmarish, but they made the best of it. Own, we are talking about events in Kerry 99 years ago, 100 years ago. And I wonder, from this remove, how are these events remembered now? Because, as you've said, there, there was such a, a, a legacy in the decades ahead and an uncomfortable legacy. How is it now for people in Kerry and the memory and the commemoration of these events? Um, I, I detect a willingness to... Um embrace a lot of the resources and material that has come to light in recent years. Um, As was referred to earlier, I suppose for much of the period, certainly in Kerry, um, the history of the Civil War was very much dominated by the Republican narrative of events, either through publications or through uh, the the very large number of monuments which were erected to to Republicans who died. Um, uh, And I suppose that that now is, if you like, to some extent being... Uh, balanced out, I suppose, by by the publication from by the military archives and so on of the accounts of uh, Free State Army members who survived, um, and certainly the relatives of those who died. That gives us, if you like, a sense that there was no monopoly on suffering here. There was no monopoly on um, the brutalities which that were descended to. Um, a, but in terms of Civil War today and, and, and its impact. It's interesting you talk about 99 or 100 years ago, I suppose. I, I would consider that as somebody, um, uh, well, relatively young, if I could say, uh, you know, that that's a number of generations ago. But, you know, in some ex- to some extent, it's not. My my grand-aunt uh, is 97 years old and, I, you know, was born a couple of years after the Civil War. And 100 years, I suppose, is not a long time ago. And there's still, you know, there are people around today whose fathers and mothers were, were killed in the Civil War in Kerry and elsewhere. And who were caught up in the violence, um, but I, I'm I'm really pleased that we now have the material that we do have from the pensions collection and from uh, certainly the army command reports that are available as well that allow us actually to read and listen to uh, the accounts of the people who were who were caught up in all of this, and not just to listen to them but to hear them to read what they have to say, to closely read what they have to say, because in, in many cases the, the, the pictures painted and what they talk about is extremely vivid and extremely eloquent and articulate. And, and uh, um, it's interesting that um, for so long, um, I think one of the, one of the other legacies, as, as we're talking about it, is, that, is, is the failure of the state to adequately compensate uh, the relatives 
of those who had been killed on both sides of the divide. And the, the pensions archives are replete with letters from the mothers and fathers of young men who were killed on the IRA side or on the Free State side, literally begging the government for help. Uh, they might have, in many cases, have been deprived of the eldest son who was killed and, you know, the, the breadwinner of the family, begging the government and begging governments of all political colours uh, for support and assistance. And it's really desperately saddening and, and shocking to to read um, how badly the state failed to support uh, families financially, those who had been impacted, because the vast majority of applicants for, for military pensions were turned down. And even though the politicians and the, the, the political figures from the Civil War who went into politics subsequently were getting all these letters from their constituents saying, you know, I, I have no money, my family is starving, uh, I haven't qualified for a pension. Um, you don't see any doll debates or you don't see politicians in you know in decades subsequently commenting on how collectively the state and, and parties of all uh, persuasions if you like failed to um, provide meaningful supports to the families left behind who suffered as I spoke about earlier the, the emotional and psychological trauma but also the, the, the poverty and financial hardships um, but nowadays I think we, we are equipped with with a wealth of material that allows us to let those voices from the period be heard and let those voices and, and their, what they say be presented and considered. Um, and, you know, everybody will have their own interpretation of events. But I think even I, in my approach to the research, um, found that some of maybe my preconceptions about what happened during the Civil War were, were, were you know, were altered and, and, and coloured by, by, by reading those first-hand accounts that were written in those, in those years and decades after the Civil War. Michael, it's interesting what Ona said there about letting those voices be heard. I suppose it's also letting those images be heard. And and you've done that so well with the work with John. So looking on this 100 years on, how should we remember the Civil War and how should we think about it? Well, first of all, I think the debate so far in this decade of centenaries on the Civil War has so far, thank goodness, been been fairly respectful. And I don't think uh, the, 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 there's been much bitterness. So hopefully we will move on. But again, it was just looking back on it, it was a desperate time. Both sides or, or the United Republican side going into the treaty hit up against the the rock representative of the British Empire who weren't going to change their their attitude and uh, it split between those who took the best they could and those who stood out for the shining light of the Republic declared in 1916 and in effect I suppose you could say both were taking an honourable path and then it descended into the the bitterness of the civil war between former comrades and, and then come September 22, it descended into reprisals and assassinations and executions, and then the atrocities in 1923, particularly in Kerry. So as we move on, uh, hopefully we will treat it all in in a mature way. We record it, but luckily we live in a different Ireland now. Well, my thanks to my brilliant panel of experts, Dr. Mary McAuliffe of UCD and the author of Margaret Skinner, Ono Shea, whose new book is published this month, No Middle Path, The Civil War in Kerry, Michael Barry, the co-author of The Irish Civil War in Colour, and John O'Byrne, the other co-author of The Irish Civil War in Colour. That does bring us to the end of another edition of Talking History. My thanks to my producer, Marais O'Sullivan and Peter Malloy on sound. We'll be back with more debates and discussions next week, so hope you can join us then. 
This Wednesday, we'll be recording a special edition of Talking History at the GPO in association with the Dublin Festival of History, and we'd love for you to join us. Just send us an email, talkinghistory at newstalk.com, and join us as we talk about the 1916 Rising and the incredible story of the GPO. We've been Talking History. Good night.